Good morning to everyone, even to those of you I don't know, even to those of you at home. I just feel like saying good morning to everyone because we got to be nice today because we're going to talk about unity. <laughs> but the morning didn't really start off great in terms of the topic of unity. Let me show you what I woke up with this morning. <laughs> Do you Show the next one, please. Yeah. So here's what I know that I'm going to share with you. Our youth at our church, you have raised children with issues. <laughs> and uh, some of those came out last night at my house because they had a big thing called Unite with all the youth. I'm sure they were out sharing the gospel with people. Until they got to the gospel man's house. And they got a little ornery trying to be funny. But what, what they don't know is me and several of my neighbors have already told We got doorbell cameras. I know who they are. And in my book, repentance equals forgiveness. So I would encourage those rascals to self-report to me personally. Now, may we move on with unity, right? <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4, to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. This is a two-parter, Cultivation of Unity, part 1. Monty will finish the chapter next week, part 2. Until Monty's sermon last week in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, the first three chapters of Ephesians, if you remember, asked us to do nothing except remember our past alienation from God and our present acceptance in Christ. Here's how Paul put it in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we have said over and over that chapters 1 through 3 are doctrinal and chapters 4 through 6 are what? Applicational. Big picture. Because what happens is huge when a believer sees that God is glorious and gracious and good in chapters 1 through 3. That's huge to motivate us to walk with him well. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, with all the force possible, Paul exhorts us Christ followers to walk or to live worthy of their glorious salvation that they've already been given. And we know this. Often, especially in today's world, Christianity can be presented as if nothing is required of believers. Come to Jesus. It's free. And that's true in a sense. But there is a requirement. The New Testament never, ever gives that impression. What it does give, though, what it does say is if God's salvation is so good, and it is, then live like it. Monty put it great last week, made it very clear. Speaking of Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, his text, he said, Paul is challenging us in Ephesians 4 through 6 to look 
as objectively as we can at the gap between the lives we are living and the lives we have been given in Christ. That is a phenomenal statement to summarize the entire Christian life. We come to Christ and the difference between us and Christ is, is huge, right? And as we grow in Christ, sanctification, it gets we, we start shortening that gap until we die, and then we hit glorification, and it's closed. I loved how you put that. We tend to seek what we can get by with. That's our natural bent. But the challenge here in Ephesians 4 is to walk worthy of that call. One writer put it this way. He said, our problem is that we have a million-dollar salvation and a five-cent nickel response. And wouldn't you know that the first place the Apostle Paul starts to talk about what it looks like to live a life that is worthy of God's call, that changed your position in life from an enemy of God to a friend of God, and now you have harmony with God, the first place he starts is that you must have harmony with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Ain't that something? And I'll just tell you, they may not be a truer statement in the entire universe than this. And that is, harmony with God equates with harmony with others. And when there's no harmony with others, the first place you got to check is your harmony with God. It's true for me, and I have failed many times, and it's true for you. But if you are breathing and are aware of this world that we live in, you know, like I know, that harmony is way easier to talk about than it is to experience. Somebody say amen, right? Amen. The reason is we are born with a knack for spotting the failures of others and to identify their specks even from a distance while we look around our big plank in our eye. It's just natural, man. It's a born gift, and everybody has it, everybody gets it. Some people show it more, but there's a lot of internal stuff going on that lives that out. People can certainly be frustrating, but as John Ortberg says in his phenomenal book about this subject, everyone's normal till you get to know them. <laughs> he says it's hard to find a good substitute for people. The question we've got to ask ourselves is what is it that I'm missing about all that God has done for me in Christ when there's human disharmony or disunity? That's, that's the question. What am I missing here? The truth of the matter is you can safely assume you've created the, a God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. I've been there. Speaking of people hating each other, how many of you are familiar with the name Winston Churchill? Prime Minister of England during World War II. He had a very famous lady who worked with him in Parliament named Lady Astor. And they were famous for their disunity. They were famous for the disgust of one another. Lady Astor looked one morning and said to the Prime Minister, Mr. Prime Minister, if you were my husband, I would poison your teeth. 
Winston Churchill replied back, if you were my wife, I would happily drink it. <laughs> now, we laugh because that's exactly how we respond, right? And some of you are writing it down. That's the way not to do it, not the way to do it, right? So thank God for Ephesians 4 that teaches us, to helps us to cultivate unity with one another. Let's read it. Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. For building up the body of Christ. So, how do we cultivate unity? First point is this, the grace of the gift giver. The grace of the gift giver. <clears throat> In verses 4, 1 through 6 that Monty taught last week, Paul writes of the unity because of our uniformity. He says we are unified because of our theological oneness. We're eager to maintain, he said, the unity because we all are part of one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God the Father. So, so summarizing that, now in verse 7, Paul pivots. And basically, big picture is that he shows that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have unity because of our diversity. 4, 1 through 6, unity because of our sameness. And now he switches to unity because of our diversity. If Ephesians 1 through 3 has taught us anything, it has taught us that our God is a God that gives. He gives his life, his kingdom, his inheritance, his riches, his kindness, his power, his spirit. 2 Corinthians 8 puts it another way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. It is who he is, and it is what he does. So it should not surprise us in verse 7, look at it, when Paul says very clearly what? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It should not surprise us to see him gracing us once again with a gift. Yes, we're all the same in Christ, but the word but tells us we also have not lost our individuality. He says, to each one, to each one, that's everyone. Some of you think, I don't have a gift. Yes, you do. To each one was given a gift. Romans 12, 6 puts it, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. And look, the grace here is not a salvation grace, but it's grace, as we'll see later on through the chapter 4, it's a grace for ministry. The scriptures teaches the two, though, can really not be separated. For salvation grace 
always turns in to ministry grace through us using our gifts. Now, write these two passages down as we talk about spiritual gifts because he's just going to touch on a few here. He has written extensively in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 about spiritual gifts, and they really serve in some ways as a backdrop or a commentary on verse 7 in the entire text of 7 through 12. That is where Paul expounds on spiritual gifts given to every believer in those two passages. Let me just give you quick bullet points of what those passages say. Every Christian has at least one gift. Christians have different gifts. Some are more visible than others, but hear this, all are equally important. The gifts are not for us. They're not to glorify us. They're not to reciprocate themselves upon us to make us look good. No, the gifts are given for each other, for the entire body to flourish, to keep a unified, healthy body of Christ doing the work of ministry. So the bottom line is if you're not using your gift, the body suffers. So Paul makes it clear unity is maintained by both uniformity last week and diversity this week. Let me just bring this truth down to sort of fish or cut bait level, okay? Every Christian has been called by God as an act of grace, and they've been given everything they need for life and godliness, which includes spiritual gifts to benefit the body of Christ. But with this gift, and this is where we come in, comes responsibility. That responsibility is to live out God's love by using our gifts to serve each other. John Piper had an interesting quote that I read. I put it in your notes. He says this, most of the vices in the New Testament's Ethical instructions are sins that disrupt biblical unity. And that's what the New Testament writers address over and over and over. That's how big a deal it is. And uh, disrupt unity in the biblical community. And most of the virtues promote unity in biblical community. So what happens is when you and I don't get Ephesians chapter 3, our identity in Christ, which gives us great security, right? Like assurance and security, we feel inferior and insecure. And what happens is our arrogance, our envy, our eliteness, and our disgust of fellow humans grows. And before you know it, without even realizing it, you're trying your best to find that little splinter with that big old telephone pole sticking out your eyeball. Anybody been there before? A lot of y'all didn't shake your heads hard enough. <laughs> Let me give you a picture, okay? I want you to remember this. So I need everybody to stand up this morning. Simon says, stand up, okay? This is a picture of we're all chasing Christ. It's the unity chase. So I want you to stick your left hand out in front of you, okay? And I want you to stick your right hand, and 
behind you, and I want you to bend over a little bit. All right? Now I want you to run. Okay? All right, sit down. I'll unpack it for you. Y'all need to listen to me. I took my glasses and put them on my head. This is the picture the New Testament gives to create unity in Christ. And that is we are always reaching ahead toward other believers that we need. We need them because they are reaching back to us. They are more mature than us. They have been on the journey longer than us. And they are reaching back for us and they have our arms locked. And they're saying, you're coming with me. I'm pulling you to maturity in Christ. And then we're always pulling someone to maturity in Christ. And as I thought about this this weekend, this week, I felt some serious emotion because I can't tell you how many hundreds of people who've reached back when there was nothing to reach back for. <laughs> Humanly speaking, they weren't looking at me going, the dude's going to be a pastor. No, they're thinking, I'm trying to keep him out of jail. And they reach back and say, come on, boy. And some of them were that far ahead of me, that far. And then I arrived at Clemson University. I'm 22 years old. I'm working with 20 and 21 years old. I am literally that far ahead of them. All I knew to do was what was done to me. Come on, boy. I'm telling you, run like that. That's what it looks like. You've got your hand locked on somebody who's more mature, and, and then you've got some, your other hand locked on somebody who's less mature, and it's not a competition. That's unity. And when you grab their hands, they got something stinky on it, and you grab it anyway. Get the picture. That wasn't in my notes, but I thought... <laughs> feel like the Spirit of God led me on that one. <laughs> Second point, the return of the triumphant king, verses 8 through 10. We come to a very difficult passage here that uh, there's been a lot of spilled ink of the theologians on this passage. I, I can't even begin to tell you or take you where all I went trying to figure this out. So I want to summarize it for us. Verse 8, Paul is quoting, what you need to know here is Paul's quoting Psalm 68, 18. And then in verse 9 through 10, Paul is interpreting Psalm 68, 18. So what happens, Paul is on his way, as you notice, to write about how to cultivate unity in chapters, or in verse 7. Then it's like he gets this thought, a parenthesis, a pause, and he stops and quotes 6818 and then exegetes it, unpacks it. But in doing so, what he's doing is he's showing us why Christ had the authority and right to give these gifts. Thinking a person must have this conviction, these gifts that God gave me are straight from Jesus. So I can embrace them, whatever they are, and use them. So let me give you a little picture first of Psalm 68. If you study Psalm 68... You'll see the picture of God as a conquering king. God is victorious. He returns from winning the war. He ascends the hill of victory. And in doing so, behind him he has the spoils of war and the captives that he has caught. 
Paul is seeing this first theologically as a picture or prophetic reference of Jesus' victory over death and Satan and sin. But there's another picture that he as a Jew would know, and Gentiles would know too, they saw it, and that is when the king of Israel went out to battle and he won, he would come back to the city of Jerusalem. And he would ascend the hill to Mount Zion where God's people were established. And as they walked up the road, it was much like Palm Sunday where tens of thousands of people were praising and singing about the victory that God had provided. Behind him would primarily be three things. It would be people that he captured, the enemy. It would be people, Israelites, that he had freed from captivity that had been caught by the, the enemy, and then some riches. It is really a joyous scene, and it is what Paul sees as he writes this. A king who ascended Mount Zion with captives in the spoils of war, and then when the king gets to the top of Mount Zion, he turns and gives the spoils of war and the captives he had freed back to the people. You with me? So verses 9 and 10, Paul now wants us to know who this king is, spiritually speaking. Who is it? Our King Jesus. He died on the cross. He entered into battle with Satan and his demons. He won that battle and it really wasn't even close and behind him, he had captives that he had freed. Verse 10 tells us that Jesus descended before he what? Ascended. And how do we know? Because Jesus descending is another way to say the incarnation of Christ. This is God come to earth. You can trust what he says because he is the one who descended in the incarnation. And then Jesus ascending is what we call the ascension. He is the one who went back that he can feel all things, the text says. Now let me show you where Paul is, is referencing. If you go back or write down Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, here is who he's speaking of. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is, that is named, not only in this age but the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body. There it is, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He said, this one who descended in the incarnation and the one who ascended in the ascension. This is the king. Christ first descended in the incarnation. Paul wants to give verification and proof that the ascended Christ is the one who's given the gifts to bolster the unity in the church. It is the Lord Jesus himself where this message comes from. He has taken the initiative through unity in the body and the gifts that he gives to build his church. One writer put it this way, says, If he is the Lord who gives gifts and fills all things, we should expect his involvement in our world and should be ready to obey. That's verses 8, 9, and 10. But I want you to understand a little context. Thirdly, 
the need for godly leadership, verse 11. Obviously, we've seen and you've probably heard even before today that God gave every Christian at least one gift. And here we see these words. And as in also, verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the, and the shepherds, another word for pastor, pastor, teachers. And on an initial reading, right, it, it, it may look like Paul's getting ready for this some way setting up a pecking order between clergy and laity or between preachers and pew sitters as if somehow one is better than the other. But in reality, Paul is telling us that it is again the grace of God to give his church the leadership that it needs. That's an act of grace as well. The gifts he lists here are ministers who lead the body of Christ in ministering and in ministries. It describes how Christ equips the church for service. He mentions apostles and prophets. I'm not going to deal with those today. You can do some study on your own, but they are really non-existent in this New Testament form. Apostles were those who saw Jesus. They were only limited to those. And when they died, they were done. So if you, that's what I think the scriptures teach. And then prophets, they heard directly from God to record the scriptures, but we have the canon. The scripture is closed now. But he does mention a few others. Still have with us today evangelists. There's a gift of evangelism. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And shepherds or pastors and teachers. And this is what we need to understand. These three roles simply play their role just like everybody else plays their role. <laughs> That's the same. you got to have them all. Obviously, teaching the Word of God gives an overall direction to the body of Christ because these gifts are called equipping gifts. And, and many, I want you to remember this, many have referred to the evangelist as being an obstetrician, Right? And you put that in your blank there. He's birthing babies. And many have referred to pastor and teachers as a pediatrician, right? He's helping babies grow up to adulthood. The evangelist obviously brings new births and the pastor teachers grows them up. But I want to be clear. Every Christian is supposed to share the gospel. Whether you have the gift of evangelism or not. Every Christian is to be a teacher. Some of you are going, who do I teach? You teach that person's that behind you. That person, you're one step ahead. <laughs> but these are specific gifts of grace to certain men for the body of Christ, to serve the body of Christ in their roles. And then lastly, verse 12 tells us what the goal of every evangelist and teaching pastor should be. It's really clear. Look at verse 12 again. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Literally, it has three prepositions in this phrase. This is what it says. Toward the equipping of God's people, unto a work of service, unto building up the body of Christ. So let's clarify. We go back to verse 7. Every Christian receives a grace gift for what? Ministry. 
And obviously, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 goes into more details of what they are. But it emphasizes the involvement of every person in the church to do the work of the church. But God has given some gifts to also prepare God's people for the works of service, as it literally reads ministry there. Did you read that? In some ways, folks, this is a, this is a watershed text to get away from the kind of church model that I grew up with, which I called at times the pyramid model, the chief pastor who goes up on the mountain, hears from God, and comes back and tells everybody what to do and actually does all the ministry himself. The pastor is sort of perched up in his ivory tower like the little pope of his own church where he pontificates and does all the ministry where the people sit passively and listen and yet do nothing. The bottom line is this is how church is to be. The bottom line is every Christian, I want to say it again, every Christian should be involved in some kind of ministry of building and serving the body of Christ. No matter how small, no matter how big, that's called beautiful unity. We all have a part to play. We are the body. And you and I know if you cut off my ear, I can live, but I don't really flourish. If you cut off my nose, people used to think uh, your nose smelling wasn't important until COVID hit. Now they want to smell things, good or bad. It don't matter. Just give me my smell back. You with me? Reminded me of I played college football, obviously, and I've been to hundreds of college games and 50 or 60 NFL games, and here's what I know to every game, whether I was playing or watching. In the stands were 80,000 people desperately in need of exercise, while on the field were 22 men desperately in need of rest. <laughs> that ain't how the church is supposed to work, but it can if we're not careful. When it does happen, eventually the pastor fails and the church fails. I want you to note there the goal. It is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This word equip means to repair, to restore, to uh, repair, prepare. It's used in describing supplying an army with provisions to do their job well or mending, training, uniting in the same mind and purpose to make complete. So the church is a hospital for those who are broken and need mending, and, and the church equips them so that they heal and become whole, which then builds up the entire what? Body. Let's not forget Hebrews chapter 13, where Jesus is described as the head equipper. Listen to Paul's other words. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will and that which is pleasing in his sight. Great equippers are always pointing people to the great equipper, to the Lord Jesus himself. Well, that's how you cultivate it. I want to put a little 
whipped cream on top of this this morning with three quick keys about cultivating unity. I just thought it may help us remember and apply. The first one is humility, as you can see in your notes. In order to have unity, we must walk in humility, like Monty talked about last week, which was Paul's first virtue when writing about humility in the church. Walking with Christ in humility, it is an assault on your self-seeking self-centeredness. Walk anyway. It is, a, it is certainly a habit, but at the end of the day, we must develop this, uh, this, this is what we sort of pray for, this ability to be aware of God's presence and holiness while at the same time being aware of my sinfulness and brokenness and fragility. You understand what I'm saying? Like to hold those two things right there. When I feel discouraged, I run to the cross, the grace of Christ. When I'm feeling proud, I run and say, uh-oh, be, be, take heed, what? Lest you fall. So having that sense there, because the reality is everyone is level at the cross. This is crucial because the very second you and I think we are better than someone else in the body of Christ, it is the very second that disunity, real flesh on flesh disunity, rears its ugly head. And, and if you're like me, who's had disunity? And you have, I mean, it's not like I'm going, look at me. No, I'm saying all of us, when it raises its head, the vast majority of the time, it's about preferences and personality. Is it not? It's really about black and white known sin. <clears throat> it's about, it can be about un unintended errors or immaturities. Instead of seeing each other's brothers and sisters in Christ, we see them like they're gnats. They just buck us, right? Here's what Paul did in Romans 14 and 15. Read those chapters. Write it down. He actually addresses how you and I are to treat each other despite the differences, despite non-essential issues, despite preferences, despite personalities, Paul addresses that because he understands the very real pain and grief that goes on inside of human when there's disunity between those we're supposed to be unified with. Anybody ever felt that pain and grief? Yeah. And you get stuck and you don't know what to do. Paul does a great job of addressing that. In those two chapters in Romans, his call is to love, but what I love about it is he doesn't cater to immaturities, nor does he coddle sin, but he does want us to view our neighbors with this mind in the eyes of Christ and love them for their good to build them up in Christ. Here's what he wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul that is. 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, here's what he wrote about himself. Here's this perspective of humility that I'm exhorting me and you to walk in. Paul puts it this way. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. I don't think I would have said that. If I was an apostle, I'd be like, apostles here. What's up, fellas? Unworthy to be called an apostle, he says, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Boy, that, we walk in that, we got a chance. Ignatius put it this way, humility is essential for good relations and avoiding sin. And when one walks in humility, the prince of the world is brought down to nothing. Two last points. Unity is spiritually established. We already have unity in Christ with one another because of verses 4 through 6. Paul's saying, now you got to live it out. And lastly, the mission and work of the church is at stake. The horror stories are out there. Many of you came from churches where you experienced that. Man, we don't want to be that kind of church. We want a gospel-centered, unified church. Amen? Take a minute to ask yourself the question, so what? everybody to specifically just one application ask the Lord if there is somebody that you're just at odds with let's just specifically ask the Lord to put his finger on any concrete evidence of disunity in our relationships bring somebody to mind ask the Lord what to do what to do about it you need to confront you need to confess just need to pray ask the Lord to give you some direction forgive us where we have been careless and neglectful of our relationships with each other and, and Lord where we have 
failed to use these precious, precious gifts that you have entrusted to us. Lord, would you help us to uh, embrace the magnificent gift that we have being a part of this body, being brothers and sisters in Christ, adopted into the family of God. Lord, would you help us in the days ahead to make the most of that? And Lord, would, would we stun the world at the love we have for one another? Thank you, Father. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.